everyone. This is Marcel Drozd. Welcome to another episode of The Game. Today, we've got Tim Kintz with us. He's the author of a best-selling Amazon book called Friction. Tim, welcome to The Game. Man, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really excited to get into it with you here today. Actually, I just had a copy of your book picked up here, so I definitely want to talk about that today. But before we get too far into it, can you tell us a little bit about how you started? And, you know, by accident, I guess. In car sales, you never plan to be a car salesperson. You just kind of end up there. It's kind of like Denny's or IHOP at 2 in the morning. You don't make reservations. You just end <laughs> up there. Well, it's kind of the same thing. And my background, you know, I grew up in a small town outside of St. Louis and played baseball. was good enough to be able to go out to Arizona and play out there for three years and transfer to a college in, in California. And then got invited to play baseball up in Alaska. And then – got hurt. They get you a job during the day. You play baseball at night. You know, it's kind of like junior A hockey, that type of thing where you're invited in. And I realized I wasn't, my dream of major league baseball wasn't going to happen. I was too old, didn't throw hard enough anymore. So it was time to figure out what I wanted to do. And in the meantime, I was washing cars at the Honda and Actors store. And my buddy that was a salesperson there actually suggested that I go sell shoes at a place called Kimmy Shoes. It was part of Wolver's Corporation back then, and they owned Foot Locker and stuff. And he said that go sell there a couple months. I'm going to be a manager soon, and I want to bring you on to be a salesperson. So I didn't have anything better at the time. Gave it a shot and went, and I don't know. I don't know if you sell shoes or if they buy shoes, but it was a great experience because we actually trained for 30 minutes every morning before they opened the gates up at the mall. And, you know, I was just coming out of baseball. My whole life was about baseball. I was going to mm-hmm. be a baseball player. And that's all you do. 95% of the time you spend training. 5% of the time maybe you spend playing. And right. just the norm. And then he got promoted to management after a few months of me selling shoes, brought me over. And 32 years later, I'm still in it. Kind of worked my way up through detailer to sales, F&I, sales manager, GSM. Uh, up in Anchorage. And then I went to a school called NADA Dealer Academy. It's the National Auto Dealers Association's basically a school to teach you how to run an entire dealership from the financial statement all the way through. And I graduated from there in March of 2000 and decided I was done with the cold, done with the snow and uh, ready to leave Alaska. I did my sentence. I did my time. And <laughs> was lucky enough to get hired by a training company that at the time was the probably the best and most reputable training company in the car business. And I was with them for 13 years, learned a ton. And I think the biggest thing that started happening was technology and change and the internet and education levels of customers versus the past. So I left there and went and ran a car dealership for a year. And that was probably the best thing I did because I realized how what we did and what we need to do Mm -hmm are two different things. And the training was, was the way to sell, but there wasn't what we need to do now. And that's why I started the Kins Group because I realized the need to learn how to blend technology and face-to-face selling and digital communication together so we can give a better experience to the customers and quite frankly, stay relevant as car dealerships. As I prepared for this podcast, I was thinking to myself, what are all the different car dealership experiences I've had in my life? And <laughs> you know, I, I'm sure we'll talk about a few of the, uh, the faux pas and, and, and the things that exist in the space. I remember the first car I bought at a dealership. It was brand new. I bought a 350Z Nissan, the sports car. And 
I remember I went in, I was a young kid. I was 20 or 21 years old at the time. I was brand new. I just made a bunch of money and I wanted this car, you know, young kid, that's what you want. So I go in t-shirt jeans and I'm walking around and I'm walking around and, and no one's got time for me. Like no one's got time for me. And, you know, I finally walk up to a guy and I ask him if he can, if he can help me. He just looks at me like, where's your parents? And I just stare at him and I'm standing there. I got a bank draft in my pocket. Like I'm I know what I want. And I, I just stare at him. He stares at me and, you know, basically makes me audition for him. So I go, you know what? I'm in the wrong place. I walk out, I drive across town to another Nissan dealership. I buy a car there and then I drive it back and I ask to see the manager. <laughs> That's nice. I like it. And it was just, I was so infuriated at the time, right? But I'm sure you've heard hundreds of these stories. I'm sure you've been party to dozens of them yourself, right? So we've been that guy before. You know, in selling cars, man, it's, yeah, I always say it's the easiest uh, high paying job you'll ever have, or it's the hardest low paying job you'll ever have. Mm. And it really comes down to your skill level. But, you know, part of it is realizing, man, these guys, look, they get their teeth kicked in three, four times a day by customers. You know, mm. what other industries do we go into and treat people like crap like we do when we go to buy a car and have zero respect and give zero benefit of the doubt to the salesperson before they even say a word to us? I don't have that if I go talk to a realtor, I go talk to an investment person. I don't, my initial impression is that you're trying to rip me off. You're going to charge me too much. Mm -hmm. It's, open mind. What do you have? Prove to me that you care about me and we'll have a great transaction. But it's a well-earned reputation. Don't get me wrong. Car salespeople have earned that lack of respect up front, mm. but that's what we're trying to change, man. That's, that's my goal. And it doesn't happen overnight, but it comes down to if you have a great experience, next time you go out, then you're going to have a different mindset when you go out to get that car. I get my teeth kicked in three times, three customers in a row, treat me like crap. It's hard to make sure your head's right mm. when you talk to that next customer. And I'm not justifying it. Yeah. It's a game of failures almost. You know, it's interesting. A friend of mine from uh, years past once told me a story. He got the customer ground him down so hard that essentially, I don't even know how this happened, but he ended up having to pay the difference. <laughs> on the car that was leaving the lot. So you know what he did the day of the guy picking up his car? He had so much animosity towards the customer that he went to the car, took his floor mats out because he had the same car and said, here. And he's like, well, why are you taking the floor mats out? He goes, because I paid for them. You're right, because there's such a stigma with car sales. And that's why I wanted you on this call because car sales, it does have that lasting residue to it. And Today, in this post-COVID world, sales is so much more important for you to be able to build your business. So I thought having somebody like yourself that has dealt with probably one of the most difficult industries to sell in, you know, what lessons, what can our listeners learn through your experiences and apply that to their businesses, whether they're in construction, real estate, finance, things like this? I think the hard part like with the car business is we have a race to the bottom. Right. It's everybody see who can sell it the cheapest, who can lose the most amount of money on a car to try to just gain market share. And at some point there is no more bottom and you're not making any money. Therefore, you're not going to be able to take care of your customers. You're not going to be able to take care of your employees. And man, my belief is you want to be successful. You want sustainable growth. Mm -hmm. It comes down to how 
how well trained your employees are, right? It's whether it's salespeople, whether it's the managers, it doesn't matter who it is. It's constantly training, practicing, not assuming that they know how to do anything and having fun, right? Especially when you're in the sales industry, if you're not having fun, it's a grind, man, coming to work every day, just, it becomes a grind. It's no fun. And you spend, some of these guys spend 20% of their day looking for a new job because it's not fun. And I'm a huge believer in competition and contests and learning in different ways. I have different games and contests that we always implement in dealerships. Whether it we're learning something new, we have flashcards, right? It seems really basic, but my 10-year-old son, we use flashcards. It's active recall. And that's the foundation of how we all learn, but why did we never have our closes and how to bypass and objection handling techniques on flashcards? So Mm -hmm. I put together flashcards because we have to be able to recognize the skill. Then we got to internalize it. I need to be able to read that script to the point it's just me, right? And it comes Mm -hmm. out conversationally. Or it could be I have volleyballs that match the flashcards. So Mm -hmm. if set of closing uh, flashcards. We have a volleyball that's closing and each one of the volleyball scripts has a different objection. So I'll maybe throw the volleyball to you and say, give me the time is money close. You'd have to roll through the time is money close. If you get it right, you throw it to somebody else. Right. And it's creating instinct. Cause I always say, if you think you stink, it's gotta be your instinct. And <laughs> when it comes out naturally, the customer feels better. It's a better experience. They don't feel like it's scripted. And I'm confident that I can handle any situation, whether it's our heavy hitter bats for recognizing guys with good grosses or our right. dumbbells and fire extinguishers for closing ratios. How can you bring the fun to your business? How can you make also the competition too, right? And recognizing guys that are good, but also recognizing the guys that aren't as good. It's the scoreboard. You're gamifying the process, right? Because I mean, sales and business development, it's so much mindset, so much. And if you can turn it into a game and you can make it fun, and that's that's exactly what what you're trying to do. I know nowadays there's stigmas out there. Well, no, you don't want to show how well or how poor people are doing because you'll hurt people's feelings. But, you know, the truth is that people that do that, you're attracting sales guys that don't want to be competitive. You're creating a culture of complacency. Right of a culture of competition and growth. Don't bitch when you're grosses, when you're not making enough money, don't bitch. Don't bitch when the guys aren't working hard for that extra deal at the end of the month. Any industry that you're doing. Look, the scoreboard's there to to recognize the top producers. It's also there for the bottom guys to recognize it and realize that they need to get better. And Mm -hmm. I'm going to coach them through it. I don't just put it up, show how good or bad you're doing and not do anything with that information, but the truth will set you free. And you know, some guys got good skills, they don't produce a lot. We don't get paid for potential <laughs> in sales, man. Yeah. That's how it is. It's about what's the scoreboard. Right. No, nobody cares about the touchdown you almost got. There's no first round draft choices in the sales business. Right. You're not guaranteed salary for mm-hmm. 10 years. And then you can Cadillac in. It's all about what you're going to produce and figure out how to get better. And if you have any competition, last thing you want to do is be last. That's an interview question that everybody that is going to be a manager should ask salespeople. Mm-hmm. Tell me the last time you were in a competitive situation. Mm-hmm. And how'd you handle it? And 
I don't have to have the right answer from them, mm-hmm. but I sure the hell will know when I get the wrong answer. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I, I don't have to have the right answer in anything when it comes to interviewing the salesperson, but I want to avoid the wrong answers. Yeah. So 20 plus years in the business, things have changed. Cultural norms have changed. Has your approach to training have to change or are the fundamentals, the fundamentals, the fundamentals? Both. Okay. Right. Fundamentals are the fundamentals. Communication skills are communication skills, but the process that those skills are delivered in, the package, the order of a sales process in today's world at a car dealership has to change. You've probably had the experience of going to buy a car and it was three or four hours long. Mm -hmm. All right. Time is the new commodity. And that's the one thing that they're not going to give you and still feel like they're getting an exceptional experience. That's the fact. And how can we speed the velocity of the sale up without sacrificing the integrity of selling? Yeah, I could skip steps and get to the close, but then the negotiation is going to be a grind. Yeah. So how can we layer steps of the sale together? How can we do two or three things at one time in the sale process? Like they used to always do an appraisal after you went on a demo. Well, hell, that added 30 or 40 minutes to the end of the deal. You just Mm -hmm. wanted to negotiate, get the car and get the hell out of there. Mm -hmm. Why doesn't that get done while you're driving ours to see if you even like it? Right. Right? Okay. I'm going to get an appraisal whether you want to buy our car or not. I don't care. I want to buy your car. Even if you don't buy ours, I need used cars on my lot. And it's adapting. And how do we integrate technology into that sale process? That had to change. Look, I'm an old guy. I embrace it. But we've got all this technology with our CRMs and scanning driver's licenses and scanning trade-in VIN numbers. So it automatically populates. We have that that can speed the transaction up 20 or 30 minutes, but it's not used like it needs to be in most dealerships. So I was actually going to ask you about that because you're, you're right. I mean, the original car, I still remember the little swiper for your credit card to take that deposit and the little yellow slip and whatnot. Getting tech ingrained in the car industry is so important on the operational side. But what about on the marketing side? I mean, between social media, what we're doing here with the, the videos, the podcasts, are you seeing dealerships integrate that? Or are they still spending all the money on TV ads and all that? local TV, radio. Another one of those that depends on the store, right? There's plenty of old school stores that, you know, they're still buying park bench backs with their face on it and TV. And I don't know about newspaper much, but more and more it's digital. Everybody's going to digital. The challenge is so much of the digital, at least in our industry, it's hocus pocus. It, they all promise you all these leads and all these customers that they'll send you. Mm-hmm. But I guess it's kind of like the dog that caught the car, right? It says, now what? Once it catches it. I think that's where a lot of dealerships are at at this point when it comes to digital retail. Because there's really three ways to buy a car. It's face-to-face, traditional. You've got now digital retailing where you send an inquiry and we go back and forth with communication. And then there's e-commerce where it's just click and buy. And that's Mm -hmm. the smallest segment right now, Amazon Mm -hmm. style. It'll grow over time. People not driving it, not wanting to see it. They just want to drop shipped in their driveway. Mm -hmm. But the biggest growing segment is that digital retailing, right? And the pandemic led to it. And I think it was forced evolution for a lot of dealerships to say, man, our digital communication sucks. Mm -hmm. 
And we need to make this digital communication a better experience because it was all taken for granted. The CRM sent out templates that were written 10 years ago yeah. for desktop computers, but they weren't up to date for mobile. And custom video, personalized videos. Mm -hmm. Like if you're in real estate, you know, Bomb Bomb has was really big in real estate, co-video. I created one for the car business called Pro Video Now. That has been one of the biggest things that I've helped dealerships with is their customer engagement on digital. Because mm -hmm. you send an inquiry to me, I send you a personal video saying, hey, we got your inquiry, man, thanks a lot. You're gonna love that car, it's one of our, and it's just a quick 30 second personalized to you. Right. And then maybe I add in a quick little walk around on the car you inquired on and a link to the click and buy page on our website, right? Just, and as soon as you open that, I know you opened it. And mm -hmm. I know how many seconds of the video you watched. And now I'm communicating with you, not at you. That's the biggest goldmine waiting for dealerships that are going to embrace it. But it's still fought. It's amazing how much it still gets resisted. As I listen to you here, Tim, I think to myself, man, if I was online and I was looking for a car, because I, I call me, you know, I guess nowadays old fashioned. I want to go see a car before I buy it. I know people that have bought cars online sight unseen, but if man, if I went to your dealership and said, Hey, I want that truck. And you came up on a video or even FaceTime me while we wanted to look at it before I came down, I would go out of my way to come see that truck with you. Cause you took that extra minute. We've got dealerships that have doubled their closing ratio just by the video engagement. Oh, hundred percent. Well, and then, and then you personalize, it's no longer a truck on the lot. It's the one you saw with a certain trim package, with certain rims, with certain features, bells, whistles, whatever it is. And now that's the one you want, right? Yeah. And we have that connection, even though it was just a video, it was from me to you. It was organic, right? right? Why is YouTube so popular? Why is there a billion videos or whatever watched on YouTube every day? They're all organic videos. They're... Yeah. Silly crap. So we're TikTok. So am I going down the street on a skateboard drinking cranberry juice? And then yeah. it goes viral. But that's what people want. And so often we want customers to fit into our process and right. instead of us fitting our process into what the customers want. So let's talk post-COVID then. Car industry. Is it a tougher spot? Is it an easier spot? Or like what, what's going on? What's your sense of it all? Initially, it's easier. COVID hit percentage of dealerships or most of them got shut down. They had nothing for a month or whatever it was. Some states right. down here, some are more open than others, but they got hit hard, obviously. Mm -hmm. And then the factory shut down. So the inventory was dead and used cars were piling up like cordwood because all the lease returns. Mm -hmm. Then all of a sudden everything starts opening up. People come out and buy cars. You had two or three months of pent up demand on people that wanted to buy cars but the supply was low because they weren't building any more vehicles. So they're making more money on the cars because it's just supply and demand. Used cars started drying up. So they're making more money on used cars and values of used cars are going up. Oh, yeah. And people are coming out buying cars versus us selling them. And I think once we get through these few months of people getting back out there and getting the cars that they needed, they just had to put it on hold for six or eight months. Then depending on what happens moving forward in the economy, you're going to have to be a better salesperson. 
And you're going to have to compete against a lot of non-traditional competition. Look at, you know, with Carvana and Rome. Uh, yeah. Well, I always equate it to car dealership service departments prior to having Jiffy Lubes and all these quick lube places. Mm-hmm. Well, customers had to come to you. And then all of a sudden, all these third-party repair facilities started popping up. And now all of a sudden, I had choices. I didn't have to go to you. And in my book, Frictionless, I talk about that. I forget the exact number. There was $395 billion spent in vehicle maintenance and repairs in 2018. Mm. And only $65 billion of it was spent at car dealerships. So you think 20 or 30 years ago, virtually, I don't know, 100%, 95% of that was at car dealerships because that was your only choice. Now that they have choices, 85% are going to third-party facilities. Yeah. So what happens when there's third-party options to be able to buy new cars? You've already seen used cars pick up. Carvana is now the number five used car distributor in the world. And they were zero a few years ago before they existed. So what happens if new cars start getting sold online? Are you giving such an exceptional experience right now that when the options and choices come up for customers, that they won't consider those places because you take care of them so good? Or was your service average at best Mm -hmm. and they'll jump on any other opportunity if they feel like they're going to get a better experience? You know, it makes me think because you, you kind of just read my mind. I was going to ask you because the dealership model, you're right. I mean, you had that all-encompassing model where you had to do everything through the dealer. And then you got Mr. Lube, Jiffy, all those different oil change spots and tire changing businesses. You know, today with where we're at, it looks like the dealerships spend most and maybe me, the uninformed you know, outsider looking in, it looks like the dealerships are still spending most of their time and money on trying to find new business rather than nurturing existing customers and repeat businesses. Is, is, is that true? Is that accurate? Like, is that what's actually happening? Absolutely. We'll spend $50,000 a month or whatever the dollar amount is at each store to try to pull people in from an hour away so we can lose $500 and sell a car. But we rarely spend a dime to take care of the customers that are currently in our database. Yeah. Some of these dealerships that could fill, 10 stadiums with customers in their, that they've sold to in the past. And we spend all of our time worrying about pulling people from an hour away. And we're trying to that first time customer, every dealership knows what they spend per buyer in advertising. Right. problem shows on the financial statement. You spend $50,000 sold hundred cars means you spend $500 per customer in advertising. Very basic. And dealerships have that. I always ask them how much do you spend per customer in retention? And they look at me like they got a third eye. And I think a lot of that is because of the way our service is set up, right? It's all in dealership. You need to go to the store, wait two hours to get your car fixed. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to do that. Mm. Somebody come pick my damn car up. Yep. Put back to me and have all the service done. I'll do whatever they ask me. Whatever they tell me needs to be done in the car, I would do it if I didn't have to go there. It's interesting because... I remember when the financing and lease financing became a big deal. Uh, my finance background, I remember you study how they started doing asset-backed lending and then they started financing cars and lease finance. 
And that really set the car industry on fire at a certain point because it, it brought the transaction, the two, three year cycle around and created the used car inventory and all that stuff. I'm just shocked that nobody through that process in a meaningful way said, okay, when we turn these people over, here's how to continue to formalize that process because it just seems like such a huge lost opportunity to me, right? I always say, how do we make the dealership sticky? The factory's making it harder because you don't have to do maintenance as often. Yeah. Spread out more. So what are we doing to make our dealership sticky? What are we doing to stay top of mind? So when a customer needs a vehicle, we're there. But we're there for them not only when they need a vehicle, but any questions that they have. And it's getting done at good stores. And I think the... I guess if there's good news from the pandemic is it was forced evolution with a lot of people. There was, I got some stores that it was just the manager of the stores going in and they were answering all the leads and they were having to be flexible. You know, it's very old school procedure based. Mm -hmm. One thing we learned is we had to break the rules. And for the first time it was okay to break the rules. Oh, I see what you're saying. Cause you can't do it the way you used to do it. So now you have to try something new. You had no choice. You couldn't do anything. Even if you wanted to do it the way you did it, you couldn't, it wasn't an option. So it was time to break the rules. And I think a lot of guys learned. I think a lot of managers learned, holy crap. I've been expecting my salespeople to do this. I don't even know how to do it. And they had to learn because they didn't have sales teams there in a lot of stores. And that's the good and bad news, right? Of it, how much lost revenue do we have? But I think right now, if you want to kick ass, I don't care what the industry is. I don't care what you do. I don't care if it's real estate. And my wife's in real estate down here in Dallas. And if you want to dominate, if you want to be ultra successful, I don't know, at least in my lifetime, I don't know there's been a better time to become successful because mm-hmm. I think we have less competition than we ever did. I think more people are in that culture of complacency than they are in the striving for excellence. I think there's a lot of people that are just happy being happy and they don't push for greatness. And if you want to kick ass, if you want to be great, the opportunity is there. Now you have to go out and get it no matter what you do and what your industry is. Talent does not equal success. Talent equals a whole lot of failures if you don't have the discipline, desire, and drive to capitalize on your, on your talent. You know, it's interesting when this whole pandemic happened, people I knew lined themselves up into two different groups. Most of them were in the, okay, here it is. How do I evolve? How do I pivot my business? How do I move forward? A small group of people I know just kind of hit under a rock and some of them are still there thinking, okay, when this thing goes away, I can get back to X. And you're right. Things are never going to go back to what they were before. And now that you're forced into evolving into this environment, yeah, 100%, anything you can do, especially you know, I'm still stuck on the whole concept of such a simple idea. Just film yourself with the car that somebody's interested in. It's a game of inches. It's not one thing. Like, I'm not going to sit here and say, what's the one thing that people should do? It's there's habits and there's a discipline that you have to follow, but it changes just ever so slightly and you get a different result. Doesn't it also go to having that vision, right? Mm-hmm. There's so many people. And, and one thing you said that 
I think is critical is the people you know, the people you're around, the majority of them were striving to get better during the mm -hmm. lockdown. And I was the same. Hell, I wrote a book that's going to be coming out in January called Fearless. I put together a lead converter. It's called Lead Converter Now. It's an internet and digital retailing coaching and accountability program and created um, Pro Video Now, which is the video app that I was telling you about. I was going to make that time productive because well, when I'm back on the road again, I'm traveling again, man. I'm, I'm at it 20 days a month again. Mm -hmm. I'm not, not able to create those things. So I'm, I was going to make the best out of it. But there's a huge percentage of people. I mean, how many people got a raise because here in the States, they got an extra $600 on their unemployment. So they were making more money on unemployment sitting at home than they were when they were working. They got to enjoy Netflix, Prime Video, and their PS4, Fortnite, you know, heroes and champions, but they didn't do anything to make themselves better. It's who you surround yourself with. I can't tell you how many times my dad said, show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Mm -hmm. I couldn't hang around certain people. It's your surroundings, but it's also your vision. You know, if you really want to be successful, you need to look past the next 30, 60, or 90 days. Mm -hmm. And I think so often we live in these 30, 60, 90 day bubbles mm -hmm. and it's month to month survival, right? It's when you woke up this morning, your hum human nature wasn't to succeed. Human nature was to survive, right? Mm -hmm. You got up, body told you you needed to eat something, drink something, take a leap. <laughs> if you wanted to succeed, you had to make that choice to succeed. Mm -hmm. And if you can have vision and say, man, here's where I want to be in one year, in three years, in five years, this is what my world's going to look like. Then every single day, you have a purpose, man. It's purpose-driven life, purpose-driven career. But so many people are just that rudderless ship, man. They're just going wherever the wind pushes them and the tide pushes them and hoping that it ends up in a nice harbor and nice and quiet instead of stormy seas. And, you know, Wayne Gretzky said it great, man. He said, uh, Good players skate to where the puck is, and great players skate to where the puck's the puck is be. going. Yeah. Right. So, where's the puck going to be? Right. Yeah. The, you know, the great stores have been doing it before the pandemic. That's where the puck's going to be. Yeah. Puck is your view never changes. You're, I mean, you're along with everybody else. Yeah. You're average, and being average just means you're the best of the worst, worst of the best. You're the tallest midget, and it doesn't <laughs> make you. And that's that's. In any industry, I don't care if it's real estate, car business, insurance industry, and you need to have that vision. What is your purpose? And now all of a sudden you have something to shoot for every day. So let's talk about your book, Frictionless. When did you write that, by the way? Before the pandemic. It launched at the NADA, National Auto Dealers Convention, in March, and then we all got locked down about two weeks later. No kidding. Yeah, perfect timing for a face-to-face -face selling <laughs> <laughs> so if you were to add anything to the book, what advice would you have for people post the world we're in today? Hate losing more than you love winning. Look, winning, that's what you're supposed to do. Right. You hate when you lose, when a transaction doesn't go through, when a customer leaves without buying. That, if you hate losing, that will make you work harder than having a good win. Mm -hmm. Celebrate, great, spike the ball, now get back at it. But those bad losses – those should have the greatest impact on you. That's when you should push yourself. What could I have done better? Maybe it's nothing. 
Maybe that's just how it is. That deal was not going to happen. But maybe there is something you could do better. And I would argue that Michael Jordan's, Wayne Gretzky's, Kobe Bryant's of the world, man, they hated losing a hell of a lot more than they loved winning. Oh, yeah. Their mindset, they're supposed to win. That's why they're playing the game. Yeah. They had a bad loss or something didn't go right. That's when they busted their ass. That's when they made changes. That's what we have to, man. It's like I'm a huge baseball guy, obviously. And I hear people say baseball is a game of failures. And I say, no, it's not. It's a game of adjustments. If you're going to be in a Hall of Fame and you fail seven out of ten times, man, you did great. You're still Hall of Fame worthy. Right. But it's you learned from the other seven times when you didn't get a hit. Yeah. Take shot, shot on goal. You're not going to make every goal, but what could you have done better to make that goal? And it's a lesson. Always be learning and challenging yourself. Because nobody else cares if you succeed or fail, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. If you succeed or fail. Hell, a lot of people want you to fail because it makes them look better. Yeah, they don't have to, they don't have to own up to their own uh, circumstances if you try something and it doesn't work for you, right? So. I joke around, but it's true that there's three types of people. You got the people that make it happen, people that watch it happen, and people say, what the hell just happened? <laughs> and yeah. Determine which one of them you fall under. Yeah. So I'm curious, what is, in your opinion, what does the car industry look like five, 10 years from now? Because I mean, even pre-pandemic, you had Tesla coming out with the retail model. You had, you're talking about the internet, uh, the Carvanas. In your opinion, what does the car space look like in five or 10 years? And how can guys get, you know, pivot uh, situated for that today? I think there's going to be some big changes with electric cars. Okay. That's going to evolve our industry. And we're going to have to embrace it because mm-hmm. it's going to change. It'll change a lot. And I don't know everything about what, it, what the electric car side is going to look like. But what I do know is dealership service departments mm-hmm. aren't going to be the same. If, you know, Ford's got a goal in six years to sell 50% of their cars being electric. We're going to have to be able to embrace that. That means there's not as many repairs. You don't repair electric cars for the most part. You just replace stuff. Computers, lifts will be different. I think we'll have smaller sales forces that are more professional. They'll have to be better at what they do because they're going to have to multitask. They're going to have to be good Mm face-to-face. People are always going to want to negotiate. That's just how we work, man. Mm -hmm. But they're going to have to be able to be good at customer retention and digital communication. It's not going to be an option. It's not going to be good enough to have the mindset of hire them in masses, train them in classes, and fire their asses, and flood the floor with a bunch of people that can fog a mirror and hope they can sell something. We're going to have to shift to a higher quality, better trained individual to be relevant. Maybe this is as much speculative as anything else, but what about the whole autonomous vehicle component? And, you know, you see how cars park themselves and there's services out there where you don't even buy the car anymore. I I got an offer from, uh, I think it was uh, initially Ford, then I got one from Porsche, where you can buy a membership and you you don't even have to own the car anymore, right? It's more of a service. So is that all playing into what you're talking about from the professional sales side? Yeah, that'll be part of it. I actually have a buddy that has the rights to to Dallas for that uh, service. Oh, okay. It's a very expensive, high overhead uh, business to run because the last thing you want. So you buy a membership sure. and 
all right, you're driving a 911 now, but you need to get a Cayenne for the weekend because you and the family are going to go somewhere and the dealership doesn't have any or the membership, they don't have any. Right. Well, you're going to be pissed off. So the, the volume of inventory. Oh, yeah. Have, let's say it's domestics and you want the Suburban instead of the, the convertible yeah. driving, but there is no Suburban or no pickup. And then what happens with those used cars because they're used. So somebody's got to sell them and dispose of used cars because you don't want to drive a four-year-old car with 68,000 kilometers on it. Not saying that it's not going to work in that model can't, but it's a very high overhead. Yeah. Uh, if you put your finance hat on for a second, all that inventory, all that CapEx, all that um, depreciating inventory on top of it all it's not even an appreciating asset it's a well-known well-documented depreciating asset you take that fifty thousand dollar vehicle and you put it into your inventory it just depreciated ten thousand dollars the minute you put it in car inventory yeah you've lost 20 or 25 percent of your investment right off the top it's like buying a stock for 50 bucks a share. And as soon as they cash your check for it, it's worth $35 a share. And, and the only way you could avoid that is if you got rid of the margin on the new car, but then that destroys your actual new car sales on the other side. So you can't do it. And the cost to the consumer to join that, they're $1,500 plus a month. Oh, it's not cheap. No, it's not cheap at all. No, and, and yeah, granted that includes your insurance and repairs and maintenance, but at this point, anyway, until somebody figures out better, it's a very small demographic that can afford it and can see that that's the best way to go. I mean, I would just lease a car, lease it for two years instead, and get a new car every couple of years. Because, you know, the old rule, if you fly it, float it, or drive it, you should lease it. Well, it's depreciating. So why not just pay for the part that you use instead of paying for the entire car? You know, I've heard a different version of the Fs, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it up for you, man. <laughs> I got uh, I got young people to listen to this too. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It really is. I mean, it's an evolution. It's just like real estate, man. You know, dealing with Zillow and all these non-traditional real yeah. estate that are out there advertising that you can do it without an agent and. I don't know. Are they taking over the real estate market? No, not at least not here in Dallas. My wife's doing great. It's it's kicking ass because somebody wants to have that professional that's going to give them an exceptional experience all the way through the entire process. Do you think it'd ever be possible, more of a speculative question, do you think it'd ever be possible to have like a car consultant similar to having a real estate consultant where you okay. call a guy to get you a car and then they go to the market for you rather than dealing with someone at the shop. Yeah. There's brokers that do that. You're paying a middleman to go get you a car that you right. got for similar price. Got uh, it. There, there's challenges in that too, with dealerships selling out of their zone and to brokers and got like it. It can got work. It. It's just a, there's so many variables, man. People that need a car because theirs keeps breaking down. They're probably not going to a broker. They need a car now, right? Yeah. Which, you know, I got a buddy that's got a new AI, uh, artificial intelligence program, and it's as in-depth as it goes. He's got it down to the point where he can predict with 85% accuracy 
when somebody's going to be buying a car in the next 90 days. He knows you're going to buy a car for you know you're going to buy a car. And he's got 85% accuracy on that right now. It's pretty badass. I can integrate it with everything. Wow. You know, talking to you here today, it's, it's interesting because there's some businesses that are just meant to be online and remove the human element altogether. But, you know, just even talking to you about this, I don't see that happening in the car industry. I think at least for my life and you know, right. years following, having a human interact with to buy a car or lease a car or whatever it is, it's, it's not going anywhere. So whether it's car sales, real estate, finance, investments, there's certain human to human businesses. And, you know, that's why I think the book that, uh, that you put out there frictionless for our listeners. Uh, and even if, if you're not in the car industry, it seems like there's a lot of truisms and a lot of lessons here that can be applied to any uh, real relationship sales driven approach. So. Yeah. It's negotiating, negotiating. Everything we do is negotiating. <laughs> My fiance negotiates with me hourly. So <laughs> it's all about, like I talk about the golden rules. One of them is having removable objections in there. Yeah. So you put things in that you can afford to take out. That yeah. way they get mend. And never negotiate it out of desperation, always negotiate out of inspiration. If you're more afraid of losing the deal than you are inspired to make the deal, then you're never going to be successful. The book, Frictionless, even if you're not in the car business, everybody I've had that read it, real estate, uh, pharmaceutical sales, man, they pull stuff out of here that applies to their industry. So excellent. You know, I always say every morning when you wake up, ask yourself, what am I going to do today to be better than I was yesterday? And answer mm-hmm. yourself. And at the end of the day, when you go to bed, put your head on that pillow, ask yourself, based on what I did today, am I better than I was yesterday? And if you say yes, congratulations. If you say no, figure out what you got to do to not piss away another day. Because you don't get them back. There is no mulligans. No mulligans in life, right? Right. So, Tim, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way? They can go to kinsgroup.com, our website. we got everything on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, shops, they want to get the book there. Books on Amazon, so they can go there if they're Amazon Prime. They can reach out to me on social media. I'm on Instagram, the Tim Kent's. Facebook is Tim Kent's or Kent's Group. we got both of them. Uh, LinkedIn. I'm on there with Tim Kent's and Kent's group. Tim Kent's is the easiest way and uh, reach out to me. I'm here for you guys and love to help and love to get feedback from people. Excellent. Well, Tim, I'll make sure we include that in the show notes at the end here and we'll have that uh, on the website and yeah, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time and sharing your wisdom and your, some of the lessons here. It's uh, I'm going to have to listen to this one once or twice myself. So thank you. I love it. Well, thanks for having me.